And uh, this is one of those reviews looking at the some of the events uh, in the first year of ministry that Christ did here on this earth. Um, one of the mile markers that scholars use in studying and preaching and teaching Christ's ministry are Passovers. And there were a, a roughly three and a little bit of change year ministry, and those Passovers are the key mile markers that give us some idea as time is passing. And so this week we're going to be reviewing from that first Passover to that second Passover, some of the events that took place. And again, because this is a review, we're covering nine weeks of material we previously covered. It's going to be real quick. So uh, check uh, under your pew for seatbelts, fasten them if necessary. We have two memory verses we're going to go over, the two that we used for different parts of this session. Let's say this first one together. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. And then the second one, much simpler. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Now, the format I'm using in the review, um, there were, as I said, nine lessons. We're going to review real quickly kind of the stories associated with those and just remember some of the events and some of what's significant about those events. <coughs> Excuse me. And then because of the way these lessons are set up, often associated with the story, there'll be a principle in the New Testament scriptures that are also brought out in those lessons. So we're going to look at the stories, and then we're going to look separately at some of those underlying scriptural principles. So, I've talked about most of this. Um, through the cleansing of the temple during his first Passover, his a tramp. Yep, let's, get, let's skip that. So first of all, fasting alone in the desert, right after his baptism, there by John in the River Jordan, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He's been empowered by the Holy Spirit. Remember, up to this time in the life of Christ, while he has a dual nature, both divine and human, it's during his baptism that the Spirit of God comes down and empowers Christ. He's not the same person after his baptism that he is before his baptism. He now has that power of God upon him, my, all you know. Remember, he'd emptied so much of his divine nature out when he was incarnated, and so some of that is coming is back all of a sudden. And God directs Jesus to spend forty days in the wilderness fasting. Now, fasting is a way to focus. You ignore the physical needs of your body and try to focus on on God. Um, if anyone has tried fasting. I would not recommend 40 days. Uh, that, is a, that is actually a fatal fast. So the Spirit of God was empowering Christ to enable him to do this one. But while a fast is spiritually empowering, it's physically weakening. And of course, when Jesus' body is at its lowest, that's when Satan pops in. And Satan attempts to... Tempt Christ three times, appealing to his physical needs, his pride, and his lust for power. Now, those last two were a bit silly on Satan's part. 
But I don't think Satan had quite figured out quite who Jesus was. But Jesus resists by quoting God and by staying within God's will and plan. And I think sometimes we overemphasize the first and we de-emphasize the second. Christ stayed on God's path. And firmly in the will of God is, is the best way to avoid temptation. And the thing I think... For the purposes of Christ's ministry, remember, while Christ was divine, he still had a human nature. He still had all the weaknesses that we inherit with who we are. He could look back at this time when he resisted temptation while his body was at its weakest. It's a good thing to have touchstones in your lives. When we go through trials and we can look back and say, yeah, I made it through that. That's, that's it. That empowers you for the rest of your life, if you look at it the right way. After that, Jesus calls some early disciples. The first two disciples were Andrew and John, and they were directed to Christ by John the Baptist, who said, Behold the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world. I pointed him out to you guys before. Why don't you go do something about that? Why are you following me? He's here. And after they spend the night with Christ, Andrew goes out and gets his brother, Simon, soon to be nicknamed Peter by Christ. The next day, Jesus seeks out, literally walks to, and finds a guy by the name of Philip. Philip tells his brother, Nathaniel. Sometime after that, Christ calls these men to full-time service. The fishermen, he promises, these are going to be fishers of men. And... One of the important details of this story, it's a two-stage call. Christ tells these men to follow him, but then he, on a separate occasion, calls them to be disciples. And there's, there's, there's a very important idea here, which Bob and I have spent a lot of time talking about. The idea that even today, there's the call to salvation, and then there's the call to service, and they're not the same thing. And if you get those two confused, you're going to get your, your, uh, your theology scrambled. You start getting into aspects of lordship, salvation, and lots of other points of confusion. You need to recognize that all of us in this room, if we are saved, heard God's call to salvation and responded. Some of us have heard a call to service and have responded. But that's a greater dedication. Certainly in the case of Darren and Lester, full-time service. But it's not the same thing as the call to salvation. First signs. After calling those first disciples, Christ attends a wedding in Cana with his mom and with them. And there he does a very private miracle. Almost nobody knows about it. The servants know about it. His mom knows about it. The disciples know about it. Everybody else is clueless. They figured they pulled, so they pulled some wine out from storage somewhere. Very private miracle. But it made his disciples believe who he was. And then, leaving Cana, coming down to Jerusalem in the first Passover, Christ goes in the temple, clears it out. Because in the temple, as a convenience... 
The priests had permitted merchants to come in. And while the Bible's not clear on this, I'm sure it was on a concession basis. You pay us, we'll let you set up here in the temple. And they changed money from all the various coins that were available in the Near East into one very specific coin that was the only thing that was acceptable to give as an offering because it was the one ancient coin that didn't contain somebody's face. And to the Jews, giving a coin with a heathen emperor's face to God was sacrilege because it's all about the rules. Um, I think if we found Canadian or Mexican coins in our... uh, offering, it wouldn't be the end of the world. might take a little bit of effort, but it's not like, ah, sacrilege. Christ clears the temple of those money changers and the people who were selling animals. You know, and there's nothing wrong with being a merchant. There's nothing wrong with being a money changer, but they didn't belong in the temple. The temple had a very specific purpose, And that was to glorify God. Everything in the temple was supposed to be related to the worship of God, not the buying and selling of coins or animals. And the biblical account makes it very clear that Christ was angry about this. But in his anger, he used that anger maintaining a godly focus and used it for a godly purpose. He had um, a lash, a whip. Uh, That's not accurate. A knout. Um, a thing with many cords that you use to make loud noises. How many people did he hit with that cord according to the Bible? Zero. He, he, he used it to make a racket. He used it to startle animals. He was not lashing out in blind anger. We'll talk more about that anger issue in the second half of this. After clearing the temple... A man, a a man of the Sanhedrin, a ruler of the Jews, probably a Pharisee, Nicodemus comes to talk with Jesus by night because he doesn't want to be seen doing it because his friends don't think much of this Christ guy. But he sees the hand of God at work. He comes and has a talk with Christ. And Christ explains some very simple ideas to a very learned man, but it doesn't work very well because this learned man is already listening. Has anyone heard that term besides my wife? Already listening? It's, it's, a, uh, it's a business term that was used, I'll be honest, way back in the 90s, although I've, I've heard it in other places since. When we're listening to someone, listening is actually a very active process. You have to try to understand what the other person is saying. The reality is most of the time, if I'm listening to Darren... I'm thinking about what I'm going to say when he's done talking. Or I already know what I think he's going to tell me, so I just filter what he's saying through my knowledge of what he's going to say. I don't actually listen to much of what he's saying. Sorry, brother. Thank you. Um, when, how, when husbands and wives complain that they don't listen to each other, it's because they know what the other person's saying. They're just not actively listening. Nicodemus knew what he knew. And all the information that Christ is trying to feed into him just bounced off his prior knowledge. Because it wasn't what he expected to hear. And I could spend an entire hour just talking about active listening. And how important it is in our lives. Because if you don't, if you're you're stuck at already listening, no actual communication occurs. 
Um, but the message Jesus is giving him, you must be born again. You should understand this lesson, this message. You're a leader of Israel. I came from heaven with this message. And Jesus says, because I have a mission, I must be lifted up for mankind's sake. And this has always been God's plan. It's a entire message, the entire description of salvation, and a good chunk of the history of Israel right there in a chapter and a half at most. After several weeks in Jerusalem, Jesus leaves to go home to Galilee, but he goes home via Samaria. He doesn't cut around through uh, Perea or take one of the other routes. He does, does the straight line, which no one in Judea ever does, because it'll put them in contact with those people, the Samaritans. Don't want to deal with them. They're unclean. But Jesus goes through, and at Jacob's well, which was, you know, named after Jacob, Israel, the father of the Israelites, he witnesses to an outcast Samaritan woman, offers her living water. But she's stuck on the physical, much as Nicodemus was. And he tells her of the coming Messiah and the changes in worship that's going to happen with the Messiah coming. And he says, hey, uh, incidentally, uh, that Messiah, <laughs> right here. And after the woman leaves to summon the town, hey, I just met a man who told me everything I've ever done. He takes a chance to explain while they're waiting for the townspeople to come this harvest concept to his disciples. Hey, Don't tell me it's three months till harvest or two months till harvest. The harvest is right now. We are here. We have an opportunity. We need to get the gospel out to these people. So Christ then returns to Nazareth. And before he gets to Nazareth, he goes to various towns in Galilee. And at each town, he goes into the synagogue on Sunday and he preaches. And the countryside is, is, is rife with rumors. Who is this man? Who is this prophet? God has sent another prophet after 400 years. And the word comes to Nazareth, and they're expecting a show. And Jesus comes into the synagogue. And as is the right of any male, he can read the Bible there. And he gets up and he reads like less than four verses, and he sits down again. And they're going, where's the show? Where's the fireworks? You're this big, you know, miracles. And Christ says, yeah, uh, I could do them, but you're not going to listen to me anyway. So, uh, fool on you. Insults the entire synagogue. Now, obviously I rendered that in more modern English, but read the account yourself. He works them up into a mob, intentionally. And they walk him up with intention to cast him off a convenient nearby cliff. And he lets it progress all the way to the end. And then at the edge of the cliff, he says, you all have a good day. Walks right through the crowd, leaves. Where is our gentle, loving Savior in that story? Can you see him? It doesn't sound like the same guy. But we have to recognize as we're reading the Bible that Jesus Christ came with a mission. 
And if he was mean to these people, I believe it's because it's the only way he could reach these people. The sad truth is that some people do not respond well to kindness. And you almost have to smack them in the head to get their attention. Now, I am not suggesting that you go out and preach Christ by popping people in the head. Okay? Do not tell the police that it was my suggestion. Okay? Because I will not support your story. But Christ is here on the earth and he's doing, we can see in story after story after story, everything he does is directed toward one goal. And that is to tell people who he is, tell them God's mission, and get their attention. Because people are so stuck in already listening, they're so stuck in their daily lives, they have expectations. And in every story we see in this first year, Jesus knows their expectations, and he goes this way, to get their attention. He always breaks contact. He What is he up to now? And in the story in the synagogue in Nazareth, he is breaking their expectations to capture their attention. Just like I act silly up here to get your attention. I'm not equating myself with Christ by any stretch of the imagination. The same week we also talked about other places where Christ was glorified. We saw Christ healing by remote control. A noble comes up and says, my son is sick. Please come save him. Christ says, "Uh, he's already taken care of. Go. That's not something a prophet does. A prophet, generally speaking, comes, lays their hand on the person. We see Christ exercising a demon who was there in the synagogue, causing a ruckus while Christ was trying to teach. Both of these are getting a little beyond the scope of a prophet. And the smart people in the crowd go, hey, wait a second. This is not just a prophet. And there were those who recognized. There were those who went, who who could put two and two together and get an answer besides three. And say, hey, there's something more to this guy than just another prophet. This is divinity walking on the earth. And then we looked at stories In lesson 137 of Jesus healing, the mother-in-law of Peter, a leper on the road between villages, and a paralytic let down through a freshly demolished roof. And we saw Jesus in these stories using every opportunity to drive home the lesson of his divinity. Once again, by doing what's not expected. When When the paralytic is let down in front of him, and everyone in the room goes, ooh, he's gonna heal him. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees go, blasphemy! How dare you? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. And to prove who I am, get up, walk away. Take up your bed, you don't need it no more. But the story closes in Matthew, chapter 9, verse 8. The people glorified God, which had given such power to men. They missed the point. God had not given that power to men. He had given that power to his son. 
And this is a common thread we see all throughout that first year. Jesus is preaching. Jesus is teaching. He's not pushing his teaching very far yet. He's not saying a lot of really controversial things. He's healing, and he's making it clear that this prophet named Jesus, because he was a prophet, was more than just a prophet. And a big piece of his message is, I am the Son of God. My Father and I are one. I am the Lord of Sabbath. Every time he's interfacing with the Pharisees, the point comes up, I'm God. But the people are already listening and they don't want to hear it. The message just bounces off their thick skulls. And don't be too hard on them. Trust, you. Trust me, there are so many messages that have bounced off our thick skulls. 138, Brother uh, Bob brought. I was unable to be here. I missed that lesson, brother. Is it taped? You're killing me. And in that lesson, Jesus calls Matthew about a week after healing the paralytic in or near Capernaum. And once again, Jesus goes to Matthew, calls him from behind his table. Matthew, come join me, follow me. Matthew's sitting at a table full of money. It's all the taxes he's collected. Some of this money is owed to the Roman Empire. Some of it he's collected for his own, to line his own pockets. And Jesus calls him, so he stops and takes all the money into a bag very carefully, clears the table, settles his affair, and follows Christ, right? No. no. He gets up and walks away from the money. Well, what happened to the money? Everybody nearby stole it. Of course, because it's money. He doesn't care. It doesn't matter. He's heard about Jesus. Because if Bob the carpenter stops me in the street and says, follow me, I'm going to say, who are you? But if Jesus, the prophet whose fame has gone throughout Capernaum, who's now using it as his headquarters, comes to a man who knows he is so unworthy and has no right to be anywhere near this prophet. This prophet says, follow me. He jumped up so fast he knocked the table over, far as I'm concerned. And so Matthew holds a feast for all the outcasts that are his friends. Hoping they will find what he's found. The Pharisees criticized Christ for having the audacity to eat with these sinners. They are far too righteous to associate with such scum. They might get food upon my tie. They have terrible table manners, you know. But Christ associated with people like this, not to hang out with them, but to reach them. And the Pharisees could not see how incompatible their beliefs and their way of life and their attitude were with the Messiah. Because the reality is, everything changed in that manger in Bethlehem. On that day, nobody, hardly anyone noticed, but the history of the world changed. 
And everything really changed when Christ came up out of the Jordan River and the Spirit of God landed on him. That's an inflection point in history that has seldom occurred. And everything that went before that date was one history. And everything after that date was another history. And the Pharisees, clinging to that old history, trying to patch on these new beliefs onto their old religious system. Jesus says that's like, like putting patches on a, on a wine bottle. It'll split, wine pours out. Well, you've wasted your time, congratulations. They couldn't see that everything they believed was totally incompatible to this new world. And then last week, we talked about Jesus visiting the miracle pool where miracles routinely happened, maybe three times a year, maybe more often. And God is just miraculously healing people over and over and over. Not that fast, certainly. But it's a regular thing. People know, hey, we'll go to the healing pool and maybe we'll be the next lucky guy. It's like winning the lottery, only better. You don't have to buy a ticket. You just have to find a way to get to the pool fast enough. And Jesus comes to this miracle pool, and he talks to a guy who's been there for 38 years, who's just too slow. He doesn't have anybody to help him. And he hasn't been able to build a ramp to just roll down into the water. He doesn't have a couple friends to eat him into the pool. Christ heals the man, but the focus of the story is not on the healing it's once the guy picks up his bed and starts heading home, and the Pharisees, the rule police, say, hey, 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 You can't carry that bed. It's the Sabbath. And the man very reasonably says, the guy that healed me told me to carry my bed. And I said, yes, boss. Well, who was it? I don't know. Some guy. He might have been a, Naz- he might have been a Galilean from the way he talked. Christ runs into the guy later, reveals who he is, and the guy immediately tattles on him to the Pharisees. It was that Jesus guy. He did it. And the focus of the story is not the miraculous healing where it should have been, but on the reaction of the Pharisees, because they're so stuck in their belief of sanctification by works and our rules. Only through our rules can you be good enough to get close to God. And their growing opposition to a Christ who has no regard for their rules or their authority. Because trust me, in the mind of the Pharisees, if this guy really was from God, he'd be on their side. Because we are the keepers of all things religious. We're the guys. And they cannot conceive that (laughs) they've missed the boat. They're stuck in rules land. So... That's the story. That's the arc that the Bible tells us about the first year of Christ's ministry. It's a time of growing popularity. It's a time of Christ getting out his message, but a very simple form of his message. We're going to see a transition as we study after that first, excuse me, that second uh, Passover The message is going to change, and Christ is going to start revealing a little more of the reality of who he is and why he's there. And and parts of that message are going to drive away the people who liked him in the first place. 
It's a little too challenging. It's messing with their preconceived ideas. But at the same time, as he's introducing these ideas, he's bringing in some very important Christian modern ideas to which are, you know, if you study the Old Testament from the right perspective, they're there. But he's bringing them out in a way that the average Jew has just failed to recognize. So first, Christ, our priest and our intercessor, he's identified with Israel and humanity during his temptation. We have a high priest tempted in all things as we are. In weakness, in... in, 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 in uh, yeah, I know pride. There was a word I was looking for in the middle there, brother. I apologize. In appealing to his pride, in appealing to his greed, we don't think about pride or greed when we think of Christ because he didn't display those characteristics. But if he was human, the potential for that behavior was there. And Christ showed us a pattern of escape. Live inside God's will. Choose to flee sin and resist the temptations before us. And understand the reality that if God gave Christ the strength to resist a temptation, and that same spirit that Christ used to resist temptation is living in us, that when we give in to temptation, we're consciously rejecting that strength of God and choosing to sin. That's not a pretty picture, but that's reality. We looked at the 12 apostles. Most of them were working class, blue-collar people. They weren't engineers, lawyers, doctors. Because Jesus wanted followers, not arguers. <laughs> if I had been a disciple of Christ, I would have been worse than Peter. Because I am by nature an arguer. Christ did not want me as one of his apostles. He wanted people who would follow. His message was not difficult to understand. It was 100 level college course at most. Okay? You didn't have to have years of book learning to be a follower of Christ. Fishermen were not known for their edumacation. Because they didn't get none. There are no prerequisites. They had different backgrounds. Fishermen, a sinner, a terrorist. Six, we're not sure what their background was. Many of them would have been illiterate. And we associate illiteracy in this country with stupidity. And that's not fair. Because in a world where there is no writing... The human mind has actually been observed in field conditions, in actual world. Their brains are different than our brains. The brain of, illiter of an illiterate has stronger memory sense centers than we do. Because when I want to remember something, I write it down. So I don't have to remember it. Because frankly... I haven't exercised my memory particularly well during my life, and it stinks. If you can't write it down, you have to remember it. And if God is calling 
12 people to spread the message of Christ, what better way than to bring in 12 people who are good at remembering it? Now, certainly the Spirit of God helped. But these people, one of their gifts that very few of us in this room have was they could remember. When Matthew and I were talking this morning, what did we say? We're bad with names. I guarantee you every one of those apostles got the name of everybody they met because they were used to remembering it. Hand-selected by God for what they brought to the ministry. Jesus went and got Philip. Jesus went and got Matthew. Jesus called the fishermen. These are not 12 random people who happen to bump into Christ in the, on the street corner. Handpicked by God for what they brought to the ministry. What's the lesson for us there? God still handpicks his ministers. God still picks the people he is using to spread his word. Far be it from us to judge God's picks. They're all first round drafts. Every last one of them. Anger. We talked about anger. Anger is not anger. Some of us, by our nature, are more angry people than others. I am an angry person. I try hard not to be an angry person. I have a model of my earthly father who is an angrier person than I am. I don't like seeing myself, my father in me. So I have a, a warning. My wife will drag me up short. You're acting like your dad. It is possible for us to be righteously angry using God's anger as a model. But to be righteously angry, we need to be defending non-sinful things. Not getting aggravated over something that has nothing to do with God. And we need to be doing it in a non-sinful way. Destructive anger is not godly anger. We must temper justice with mercy. It is possible as a Christian to be angry over something and not be sinful about it. Of course, it's much easier to just be sinful about it. In Ephesians, we're told, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry. Be ye angry. The Bible tells you to be angry. But, or and, excuse me, be angry and sin not. We're allowed to be human. Because anger is one of the emotions that God built into us. It's a defense mechanism. It's there to be triggered when we are threatened. The problem is too many of us are threatened by bad words. Or by the anger actions of others. Or by being cut off in the, uh, on the freeway. Uh, my wife also talks to me about yelling at other drivers. Uh, I got to, exp- I got to ex- exercise my right to yell at other drivers during my ba- ride back from Waco. Regardless of the signs posted, nobody thinks you're allowed, you just, you just stay in the left lane and sit there doing 50 miles an hour in a 75 zone. I was expressing my anger in a non-righteous way. I got called on it. Be, ang- be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. It's all great advice. <laughs> what a surprise. It comes out of the Bible. 
to God be the glory. We talk over and over in this set of lessons in particular about glorifying God. Everything Jesus did was to glorify God. Everything we're supposed to do is supposed to glorify God. Who does God think he is? Thank you, brother. But to a secular humanist who has a human view of God, how dare God be so stuck up as to say all the glory goes to him? Well, that just means you've got a goofball image of God. If you understand who God is, if you recognize he is the one eternal being who pre-exists and post-exists this universe who created everything, he is big G, big O, big D, God. If he gives glory to anything else, it's actually sinful because all the glory belongs to him. All of it. And if your brain ever starts spinning up this idea of who is God, stop and realize what you're doing. If you find yourself nodding along with the world, something's, something got a little bit messed up here. Check. Okay, because your picture of reality no longer matches reality. And there's a word for that. Do you know what it is? Insane. So let's not go there. Lesson 136, we talked about the need for salvation. As shown by Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus. And it's a, it's a simple process. It's, it's a matter of recognition. We, rec- we have to recognize we're in danger of hell. We have to recognize we cannot save ourselves. We have to recognize that God made a way for us. And then we have to accept his way, relying on nothing else but his, on his finished work. But you can't mix anything else in there. Okay? This is not a pad thai where you can add anything to it and it still taste good. Except for maybe chocolate ice cream. Um, you can't mix anything into God's plan of salvation or you mess it up. It's not salvation by our works. It's not salvation through giving God lordship over our life. It's not through baptism or speaking in tongues. It's none of this other stuff. And so our sister, and I'm going to use quote, air quotes here, all the other flavors of Christianity have gotten lost because they've mixed something else in. And what's the danger? Well, if you're relying on God and, are you relying on God or are you relying on and? Because if you're relying on God, it don't matter if you go to a Catholic church or this one, you're going to end up in heaven. And if you're relying on and, it don't matter where you're going, you're going to end up in hell. So I'm going to do my best to take and out. So that I don't have to worry about accidentally relying on and. Let's just rely on God. Then we don't have to worry about messing it up. I'm running over as usual. How can a loving God permit that to happen? How many times have we heard that question? Have we gotten tired of it yet, brother? Good for you. (laughs) Illness is not all caused by personal sin. The Bible is very clear on this. Read the book of Job if you doubt me. 
not the only place either. And yet, it's an idea that hangs around in our collective consciousness. Oh, they're going through tough times. I wonder what they did. <sighs> Thank you, Catholic Church. They're not the only ones, but they're, they've been pushing that idea for a couple thousand years. A couple thousand, that's an exaggeration. 1,500. God permits challenges in a Christian's life to encourage growth and to glorify him. That is biblical truth. Suffering in our world is the product of original sin in our world. Biblical truth. God could heal all of it like that. Biblical truth. Agreed? Yes. So if he doesn't, he has a reason. And you know what? That's where the discussion should stop. Because if we take it to the next step, why? Well, now we're judging God. Careful. Don't want to be doing that. So there is a purpose to suffering in this world. Now, in studying the Bible, in the end, that purpose is to glorify, bring glory to God. Yeah. If suffering causes people to turn to God, then that's kind of good suffering. And yeah, that's a really twisted idea. We have to trust in God's wisdom and not try to spend too much time trying to figure it out or we're going to tie our brain into a pretzel and that's not productive. Brother. I would turn to God. Amen. Thank you, brother. And I was supposed to preface my entire review with feel free to speak up. Thank you, brother. If we walk outside God's will, God has told us he will get our attention. And God has a big beating stick. I'll be honest, I'm scared of it. I, you know, there, God has a carrot and God has a stick. And uh, I believe there have been times in my life I have felt God's stick. I don't remember enjoying them. And I worry about, I worry about my kids. Because if they're truly saved, there is one big stick coming for them. Because they've chosen to wander off. <sighs> the fallacy of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were so righteous that they did not need salvation. They had no use for it. They insisted on apply, applying their old ways to the new ways. Christ's followers didn't fast. You need to pick on them about that. Christ says, this is a time of rejoicing. Fasting will come. They did not withdraw from the world like the Pharisees who were worried about getting other people's food on their ties. And Christ, again, responded, there's a purpose. Christ chose the lowest of the lows to accomplish his purpose. And let us not judge those he calls today. The Pharisees did not serve anybody. They condemned. And it's really easy in modern America for us to take a pharisaical, pharisaical? Pharisaical, the approach of the Pharisees to condemn rather than to serve. Something to bear in mind. Finally, Sabbath and standards. We have to be careful about our views of doing what's lawful versus what is right. God said in Hosea 6.6, 6, and Christ quoted right to the Pharisees' face, 
For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And this is a great place to stop this review. Obedience to his principles, knowing God and living his way, is so much more important than rules and expectations. It is so easy for us to be a Pharisee. Or to judge somebody else through a wonderfully twisted version of the weaker brother. And I've heard this more than once. And it, it, it aggravates me a little bit. Um, let, me, let me try this one out on you. Back when we had a choir. Well, if you're a lady, you can't be up in the choir loft wearing pants. Well, why not? I can wear anything I want. Well, it'll offend some of the members of the congregation. And they're weaker brothers, so you have to be the stronger brother, so you have to not wear pants. There's kind of a twisted judgment going on here. I get to apply my standards of dress to you because someone out there is weaker than you are because you're assumed to be stronger because you're serving it. That's, that's very twisted. There's a, there's a big morass there. You've got to be really careful. And I'm not judging either party here. What I'm saying is it's a mess. And I'm so glad that I don't have any authority in that space. <laughs> Sorry, Bob. So have fun. And I'm sure you've had fun. Well, we, we have got to approach each other in love and not in condemnation and not with the attitude of a Pharisee. Anybody want to make some comments as we close out? And yes, I've run over. I'm sorry. Brother, I'm sorry. I ran you over. Oh, thank you. Anybody? I know you just want to get out and go back to fellowshipping. Richard, come on up, brother. 